I'm Lynn Harder, host of Defining Moments, a podcast produced by WOUB Public Media. Humans are storytellers. We tell stories to make sense of birthing and dying and everything in between. This podcast features stories about health and healing. It grew out of my desire to disrupt the silence that too often surrounds vulnerability. Join me as guests and I explore what it means to live well in the midst of inescapable illness and hardship. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Lori Roscoe, a professor in the Department of Communication at the University of South Florida. Her work focuses on how physicians, patients, and families negotiate the ethical and communication issues that surface at the end of life. Lori's published over 40 peer-reviewed journal articles, as well as a co-authored book with David Schenk titled Communication and Bioethics at the End of Life, Real Cases, Real Dilemmas, published by Springer. Dr. Roscoe serves on the ethics committees of, of several hospitals and hospices. Today, we're talking to Lori about the industry of medical enhancements, like cosmetic surgery, and medically unnecessary care. Lori, I think it is truly a rare gift to write in a humorous way about experiences that are otherwise really difficult to talk about. And you have that gift. So thanks so much for sharing that in your recent health communication essay and for joining us today, Lori. Oh, it's my pleasure. So I'm going to be really honest, Lori. When I read your essay, I Feel Pretty, I laughed out loud. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm glad. I, uh, I, I did try to use humor to tell that story. It was a, a very it was a very painful experience for me and I wasn't sure that I really wanted to share it, but I felt that I had to share it because I was so surprised by by my reactions. Mm-hmm. And it made mm-hmm. me it made me think a lot about how vulnerable we are as patients. Even someone, you know, like me who has a lot of advantages in medical situations. I'm an expert in health communication, for one thing. I'm comfortable in medical situations. I have white skin. I speak English. I have advanced degrees. I have good insurance. And if I could be rendered so vulnerable, um, it made me think about patients and people who don't have some of those advantages and how uh, susceptible we are to to what goes on in those spaces. Mm, Absolutely. So for listeners who haven't yet read your essay, and and I encourage them to do so, it's freely accessible thanks to Taylor and Francis, the publisher of Health Communication. I'd like to read just a short passage from that essay. And let me preface this by saying, prior to this incident, your dermatologist had referred you to an eyelid specialist to see if surgery could clear up your vision. You write... The surgeon entered the examination room after the medical history was complete. He was smartly dressed in a suit and tie, no white coat, and after introducing himself as Dr. S, greeted me by my first name. You're here about your eyelids, right? He asked. He conducted a series of measurements of my eyes, eyebrows, and other facial features and called out various numbers to the assistant. The doctor gently pulled my eyebrows up and said, that probably feels better, doesn't it? 
and I agreed. He then asked me to close my eyes while he pressed my forehead toward the bridge of my nose with his palms. Now, open your eyes slowly, he instructed. And as I did so, both he and the medical assistant drew a sharp intake of breath and said in unison, oh my God. I was concerned I had no idea what my forehead had done to provoke such an explanation of alarm. What's wrong, I asked. It's not your eyelids at all. You need an eyebrow lift. You think you look one way, but other people see you with your forehead sunk down over your eyebrows. Lori, in the meantime, the doctor had determined you could also benefit from an endoscopic eyebrow lift. I'm not sure what that is. (laughs) Upper (laughs) eyelid surgery and laser skin resurfacing to avoid creepy skin. Very familiar with that. Um, but all of this for the out-of-pocket cost of over nineteen thousand mm-hmm. dollars. So, listening back to to this now, what stands out to you? You know, when I told the the story t- initially to my sister, um, she said, "Why didn't you just walk out? Why didn't you just leave? You clearly were in a situation where." you know, you weren't going to do any of this. Um, You weren't getting the information that you really needed. Why didn't you just leave? And I had to think about that. And I think it comes back to that feeling of vulnerability that I was made to feel, and I I don't mean by this essay to paint all plastic surgeons or all doctors as manipulative in this way. Um, But I was made to feel very vulnerable. And like, this wasn't just a possibility. This was a necessity. Hmm. Uh, that this is something that I should really give some strong consideration to. I'm not a person who, the idea of elective surgery makes me really queasy, and I'm not a person who would be um, drawn to doing any of those things, but I was really made to feel as though I had to consider it and take it seriously. And I, you know, again, it comes down to being made to feel very vulnerable, and Hmm. this was a very orchestrated um, effort, I think, to play upon the insecurities of women, in particular. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I, you know, I, I think I think what the point of the essay originally became, or eventually became, to try to remind all of us that doctors have a lot of power, even over those of us who think that we might be less vulnerable, and that when they recommend something. It doesn't usually sound like an option. It sounds like a mandate. Mm. It seems like something that you really ought to take very seriously and consider because, after all, they're a doctor, and they wouldn't recommend something that wasn't necessary. Well, of course, they do recommend things that are not strictly medically necessary in a variety of situations, this being one, um, and I think end of life being another. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think I connected so deeply with the essay because I'm also a middle-aged woman. I may or may not have gone and looked in the mirror and said, huh. <laughs> right? I'm sure if you visited Dr. S, he could suggest a number of things that would be appropriate for you, Lynn. Right, no doubt. And, you know, in your essay, absolutely, you own responsibility for your own feelings, while at the same time pointing to broader social forces that position people in particular ways. And as you note, men and women alike 
face pressures to defy aging, but women are more vulnerable to that pressure and tend to be more of a target audience for medical enhancement, a term you borrow from little to describe cosmetic surgery. Can you talk about this notion of medical enhancement and and how this industry really benefits from broader social norms that are in large part gendered? Oh, yes, I, I couldn't agree more. I think I say somewhere in the in the essay that when men age or fail to address um, the the outward signs of aging, it's really seen as okay because their primary purpose is not to be decorative. And for women, it's seen as as a much more sort of essential failing. Uh, and you can see it, and you know men men have gray hair all the time, mm-hmm. and it's very acceptable. Um, when women don't color their hair, you know, People say, well, why, why, why is she gray? Why isn't she coloring her hair? Why isn't she um, addressing some of these outward signs that are really pretty simple to do? Um, you know, I would, I would like to think that baby boomers are maybe the most susceptible generation to feeling the pressure to look and act and feel forever young. But unfortunately, I don't think that's the case. I think that the young women that are in my classes feel more pressure even um, at their, you know, young ages to, to meet some impossible standards of physical perfection. I think, you know, you look at, you know, who, who has breast enhancement surgery. Even Botox is really popular among younger women. I think we live in such a visual world now with, you know, ev- everything being documented and, and put on social media that there's even more pressure on young women and girls. And that, that makes me really sad. Uh, because in so many other ways, I see my students as the great hope for the continuation of human progress, um, and I wish that there were there, that there wasn't so much pressure. On, and you know, I think it affects men too, young men too. But I think they're much more protected. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What is so troubling is kind of the subtle ways that something like for you a medically necessary eyelid surgery could be read as code for, (laughs) I want plastic surgery, but I'm too embarrassed to admit it. (laughs) I think that's exactly what happened. The, the, um, and I was, you know, I, I don't fault, I don't fault the surgeon or his staff. I think that, that that's probably pretty common that, that, the potential patients come in and are embarrassed to admit that they that they want some of these procedures. I and I think that they, you know, read that as a kind of code. And I and I think again, I think the same thing happens uh, at the end of life. And hopefully, we'll be able to talk a little bit about the the fighting cancer article that we both read recently. Yeah. Um, I think it's really important for doctors to ask patients what they mean by what they say. So I thought I was being very straightforward. I, I've been recommended for an evaluation for um, eyelid surgery. Can you do whatever measurement is necessary to, to make that determination? Um, and I think that should, have been, that, that should have been discussed first. And then if he was so inclined, the surgeon could have said, well, while you're here, <laughs> are you interested in, you know, we offer these other services. And I would have had an opportunity then to say, no, I'm really just here for that. You know, similarly, at the end of life, if a patient says, you know, I want to fight this disease or I'm waiting for a miracle, I think doctors need to 
ask patients, well, what do you mean by that? What does that really mean to you? Because if a patient says they want everything done, for example, um, probably what they mean is they want everything done that makes sense in their situation. They don't literally mean everything. But sometimes what doctors do is provide everything without mm -hmm. that sort of important intervening step to say, well, what, is it, what, is a, what does miracle mean to you? What does everything mean to you? Mm. Uh, what, you know, are you interested in other procedures? What's important to you, in other words? And I think doctors, they get stopped by certain words that patients say. Um, I don't know that eyelid lift is necessarily one of them, but <laughs> certainly miracle and everything are sort of triggering words in a lot of important decision-making contexts. And I think one of the ways that communication scholars can help doctors become better at talking with their patients is to encourage them to ask that next question. Oh, I hear that fighting this disease is important to you. What would that really look like to you? What are you? What are you? What kinds of trade-offs are you willing to make? What kinds of um, outcomes can we realistically hope for in your case? And mm -hmm. I think so often that doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. I think there's wisdom in in that approach, Lori. Not just in health contexts, but when we face the wicked problems of our society writ large, right? To oh, yeah. stop and ask, what does this mean to you? Wait, what a what a powerful invitation to conversation. I, I hope so. And I, I, I really think that that it it can help us in this historical moment in not just in medicine, obviously, as you point out, but we're so polarized mm -hmm. that I think it's one opportunity to say Maybe there's something we can agree on if we just step back from our ideological positions and the language that we're using to express those positions and try to figure out what it is that's really important. What's, what's behind that particular stance or that particular uh, language? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I want to dig a little bit deeper. You've, you've mentioned a couple times your work in hospice. Um, mm -hmm. and end-of-life care for families. In the U.S., people spend a significant amount of time and money seeking medical care that does little more than prolong suffering, right? Yes. The care is not only medically unnecessary, but it can actually prevent a natural death. Absolutely. So what leads people to pursue this medically unnecessary, sometimes harmful care um, at the end of their life? Well, I think part of the issue is that physicians assume that patients who come to them want something to be done. They don't want nothing to be done. And I think that that's a faulty assumption. I think if patients come to, say, a major cancer center, they also want to know that maybe doing nothing is, a, is an option and maybe a good option. But oncologists are much more likely to discuss a variety of aggressive treatment options, clinical trials, and the like, and much less inclined to discuss the always present option of not intervening in an aggressive way, of a hospice referral, of a wait-and-see approach. You know, I think if you, you know, if you go to an emergency room, the, the people that work there assume that you want the care that they have to provide, and I think that it applies across medical settings. Um, I think physicians are just more comfortable discussing what they can do rather than what they can't do. 
Mm-hmm. And I think that we've all been seduced by the idea that that medicine can um, create immortality. I mean, we're, we're pretty much promised by television ads that if we have a medical problem, just take a pill and it'll go away. And I think physicians are also, um, you know, seduced by this idea that, yes, they can prolong life and they, they miss whether or not that should be offered, whether that's whether that extension of life is is meaningful or valuable or even tolerable in some cases. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think another thing that happens is that because physicians do not want to come across as coercive or paternalistic, and they do want to honor patients' autonomy and individuality, they put too much pressure really on patients and families to make these decisions. I, I think that physicians need to limit what they offer to patients. Mm. That, that everything is not on the table, you know, um, and and it, it goes under. It goes sometimes under the idea of we're palliating the family. Uh, the family can't, you know, mom's no longer capable of, of making her own decisions. So her partner or adult children are making decisions, and they can't bear to say. Yeah, let's let mom go. They feel that they are causing her death. Um, I think doctors, and so they say to the doctors, you know, do everything that you can, you know, to keep mom alive another day. I think physicians have a responsibility to put a stop to that. Mm-hmm. Say, um, no, dialysis is not a, an option here. Um, that's not going to help your mother recover any sort of meaningful life. And I think doctors are they're hesitant to do that. You know, they're, they they are. You know, I've sat in rooms with physicians and, and they say, yeah, you know, I will put a dying patient on dialysis because that's what the family wants. And, you know, what, what harm is it going to do? And my response is I think it does a world of harm. I think you're now treating this patient as a non, non-person. You're treating this person as an object. You are avoiding a conversation with the family that, that lets them off the hook. And I think it's reasonable for a physician to say, your mom is going to die. I'm very sorry about that. We will make her as comfortable as possible, but there is not treatment that will prolong her life in any meaningful way. And I think that if physicians can have those kinds of direct, compassionate conversations with family members, I think that would go a long way. Mm-hmm. When I ask doctors why they don't do that, they say, we don't want to get sued. And I point them to the research literature that shows that the doctors that are good communicators that take the time to explain things to patients and family members are not the ones who get sued. Mm -hmm. And there's actually been a slight backlash of family members who are suing physicians for keeping patients alive and putting them into situations of, um, you know, great greatly debilitated conditions because they intervene um, against, you know, what would typically be medical advice or in some cases against a patient's advanced directive. Mm It strikes me that if we can step back from any individual case and any family in in the midst of those really difficult decisions and think more broadly about financing of our healthcare system. For every time that we invest in aggressive treatment that 
does very little but prolong suffering, we funnel resources away from a preventative system of care that helps to foster well-being, right, across the lifespan. And I think that's a really important point. And we never talk about cost when we're talking about decision making. And I think that I think we have to. I mean, it's very uncomfortable to put any sort of dollar limits on the value of of a loved one's life. Um, but other countries do it, and and I think do it do it quite well. Uh, we we just back away in this culture from anything that looks like rationing or socialism or socialized medicine. And, and I think what, what, what we're doing instead is trying to be good stewards of a scarce resource. And mm-hmm. that is, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's money, you know, it's the cost of care, but it's also physician and nurses time and expertise. Um, you know, when nurses in particular are, are, put in positions of doing things to patients that they think is futile and burdensome and unnecessary. It leads to moral distress. It leads to burnout. It leads to compassion fatigue. We don't, those are not things that we want for our nurses. They, their jobs are hard enough without that additional burden, but we just don't ever want to put a price tag on it. But if you think about it, there is no other service that we purchase that we don't know how much it costs. Mm. I mean, we <laughs> imagine if you went to the grocery store and the cashier just said, well, what do you think this is worth? Or I'm just going to charge you some amount based on some credential that you have. We, we just wouldn't tolerate it. And in medicine, we never ask, well, okay, you want me to have an MRI. What is that going to cost? Mm-hmm. You know, and whether it's my out of, you know, I know, I know for a fact that because I have such good insurance thanks to my university I get more care than I probably need you know I get you know if there's a a suspicious you know spot on my lung I will get an MRI every six months is it necessary no it absolutely is not necessary um what does it hurt well I think it hurts because Mm -hmm, those mm -hmm. you know those costs are are cumulative Mm -hmm, but we just mm -hmm. are you know and again patients you know it would be it would be hard to imagine in our current environment if a family said do everything to keep mom alive and the physician said that's going to cost you five thousand dollars a day. Um, you can only imagine the headlines in the newspaper, right? Right. Uh, local hospital puts price tag on elderly woman's life, right? I, you you just it's so we we have we have a lot of work to do in order to sort of merge our values with our with our resources. And I Mm -hmm. think, I don't know where to, I don't know where to start with it. I think the Affordable Care Act did some really good things in terms of, but you know, you see the backlash against that. So Mm -hmm. I don't know, I don't know whether the point of intervention is at the bedside of individual patients or whether it's, um, you know, more at a sort of policy level, maybe both. Right. For me, what one of the things that gets me up in the morning and that inspires me is really thinking deeply about how we talk about, mm-hmm. how we communicate, how we visualize experiences, relationships, right? how we make meaning about health and healing. So 
whether it's at the bedside or on a broader policy, one of the things that I think is is interesting to think about is how there are certain metaphors mm-hmm. and ways of talking that perpetuate things like medically unnecessary care at the end of life. So just this morning, I, I emailed you because I had read a, an editorial that came out in the LA Times. It just came out a few days ago in May. It was written by Sunita Puri. I, I'm not quite sure how to pronounce her name. The op-ed was titled, The Good That Can Come From Stop Seeing Cancer as a Battle to Win or Lose. And she really interrogated from a poetic, beautiful, sympathetic place, the familiar language of fighting and beating a disease (laughs) and where there's winners and losers, right? And and if you choose not to, to fight with all of the science and technology that's available, right, there's this assumption that you're giving up, right? And that's a communication challenge in part. The way that we talk frames the set of choices that we have in front of us, right? And it strikes me that that what is what is in part minimized in in our broader conversation is an understanding that you can die in a healed state that no matter how strong our determination our bodies will will die right and we're not immortal we are we're not and i think one of our our greatest human capacities is to bring together hold together both beauty and pain and I'm not convinced that that language, that warrior language, serves us well in the long run, even if it feels so empowering for individuals in the moment. Yeah, I've been very critical of the fighting language associated with cancer, especially since it it paints patients who don't want aggressive treatment or who don't respond well to it as somehow having being losers, you know, they, they haven't they haven't tried hard enough. I I do think though that cancer has a kind of victim status associated with it. You know, we talk about people who succumb, say, to Alzheimer's disease, but cancer seems to have a different narrative associated with it. And I think in part that's where the battle metaphors come into play. I've I've had some more personal experiences with cancer over the last several years, and I see a little bit more clearly now that you need courage and some kind of fighting spirit to cope with a cancer diagnosis and the treatment that's required. And any good outcome can feel very much like a victory. So I'm I'm a little less critical of that language than I have been in the past. But I think the article, my favorite part of the article is, again, where um, the author talks about the importance of doctors asking patients what they mean when they say, I want to fight this. Mm-hmm. Um, because too often the choice of not fighting it just isn't an option that that you know doctors don't tell patients with cancer here are the things that you can do and you have an option to not do that and this is what it will look like um, should you choose not to treat it and sometimes that's not a bad thing um, reading Barbara Ehrenreich's new book called Natural Causes and she has decided, she's not disclosed her age, at least in the first couple of chapters, but she's decided that she's old enough to die now. 
and that she's not going to, as she puts it, go looking for trouble. So she says, I'm not getting mammograms. I'm not getting anything diagnostic done that might reveal a problem that I'm not already aware of. And she says, if something comes up and I have a symptom and I'm diagnosed with something, I will make uh, what she hopes would be a very reasoned decision about how to go forward, including the idea of, of dying from whatever is discovered. Uh, I think it's a really, I think it's a really interesting book. I think it's a really um, brave stance to take. Um, mm -hmm. I'd be interested mm -hmm. in following her arguments as well as her own journey because I, you know, I've, I've just seen it over and over that patients, people, before they become patients, have pretty strong ideas about what they would and wouldn't do, what they could live with in terms of, uh, you know, loss of functional capacity, uh, what they think they could or couldn't endure. And then when they're placed in that situation, uh, suddenly being in a wheelchair isn't the worst thing in the world. Or they find that they are stronger than they thought and that that they can endure um, more discomfort or more intervention than, you know, obviously not something that people want. Um, so I'm interested to see when she's in a situation of having to make that decision, if um, I'm not setting it up as a test for her or anything, right, but right. I'm interested to see uh, if, if she changes her mind when, when faced with really life or death stakes. Right. I love how you framed her narrative as brave. And for me, I think there's real um, potency in flipping on its head the way that we typically think about courage, that courage can mean choosing aggressive treatment, but courage can also mean choosing not to pursue that. And that goes back to how how do people in the particular circumstances in which they're living their lives, what does that mean to them, right? And and taking into consideration right, the other broader cultural resources in their surround, I am reminded so much, Lori, of, of my father resting in peace. Um, he lived with multiple myeloma, and then colon cancer for 13 years before he passed. And he he very much um, embraced a military sort of language. And that language and everything that it offered him allowed him to see his granddaughter born and to see her grow up to a place where she would remember him, right? And he was able to still practice law for a certain period of time. It came very naturally to him because he had been in the armed forces in Vietnam. It was a way of thinking that shaped how he entered a courtroom. Um, but then at the end of his life, when we were in hospice, the very last week, he asked me for help in changing his diaper. And I rem I, at the time and even more now, I felt like that was a profound gift that he gave me, that he allowed me to be a part of what typically could be perceived as real vulnerability. Oh, absolutely. Weakness. <laughs> yes, weakness. Yet that's bodies leak, right? And and 
if you if you've been around family members with serious health issues, you know this is not atypical. And for me, I found it just as courageous that he allowed me to witness that and to be a part of that as I did when he chose to have a stem cell transplant. Um, that that courage takes a lot of different forms across right the lifespan and and in any particular experience of a disease or treatment and being able to think and talk in ways that recognize that diversity i think can be really helpful for us oh that's a that's a thank you for sharing that with me lynn that's a that's i'm glad you have those memories of of your dad mm-hmm. um i think you know when patients say, for example, I don't want to do that, um, that is met with such suspicion on the part of physicians and such animosity on the part of family members. I think that plays into a lot of decision-making, too. If, if, if there's something that, that can be done to let's uh, stick with cancer for the moment, um, then it must be done. It should be done. And you're, um, you're a fool if you don't take advantage of that um, opportunity. So you, you know, patients get a, get a lot of pushback from doctors who, who believe that they have a technology or a treatment that, that will work. Um, and I think they underestimate sometimes what that trade-off looks like to patients, whether they want to spend however much time they have left in a cancer center or where they want, they want to spend it at home with hospice care. And, and family members put an enormous amount of pressure on on their loved ones to accept care, to in, to endure treatment. So I think, you know, I, I think the, the battle metaphor served your father because that was a part of his identity. Uh, but I think that they can, you know, they, they can also not serve patients who, not because they're weak or because they're scared, although they might be both, but because they think this is right for them, um, don't want to fight. Don't, mm-hmm. don't see the, you know, or, or see the odds more clearly of, of not, not winning this one and not wanting to endure um, the, the treatment that, that goes with it. I mean, it, the, some of the, the treatment for cancer is, you know, it's pretty brutal. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it works um, sometimes. Uh, sometimes it does miraculous things for people. Um, but it's not easy. And it's probably not for everyone. And I think the acceptance of our mortality and the acceptance of when enough is enough or when not intervening is is the nobler choice i think that that has to be that has to be a part of the conversation and it's just something that none of us are very good at and i i think the you know our whole medical system as you mentioned earlier is focused on aggressive intervention it's not focused on prevention it's certainly not focused on discussions about mortality or dying. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I think we need, we need to get we need to get more comfortable with it. So you're helping us in this. You recently published a book with David Shank on communication and bioethics at the end of life. This book includes case studies that are integrated in medical schools that that help future physicians wrestle with some of these dilemmas. Can you talk to us about kind of 
what you've learned working with physicians and medical students over the past several years about how to improve caregivers' communication at the end of life and and how to empower families? Um, well, thank you for mentioning our book. We're, we're very proud of it. It's something that we literally talked about for years and collected cases and spent hundreds of hours discussing them and, and finally sat down and wrote it. And one of the main insights that came from that writing process is that a lot of what is described as an ethical dilemma at the end of life always contains some ethical difficulties, yes, but also some communication difficulties. And then if you don't separate those two domains of concern, it's really difficult to resolve the, the situation in any kind of meaningful or satisfactory way. I think that communication issues are focused really in, in two ways. One is the fragmentation of medical care and the other is family dynamics. You know, I think doctors who are part of the same patient's care don't talk to each other about their impressions of the patient or the, or the patient's prognosis. Uh, they don't take care of the person as a whole person. They take care of the, the liver or the colon or whatever their specialty is. And patients and families get a lot of mixed messages about prognosis and options for care. That's a serious problem. And end-of-life situations surface all kinds of family issues. You know, who did mom love most? Who provided the care? Uh, who has a guilty conscience that needs to be assuaged? Who's going to benefit from this from this death? Um, you can look at to the Terry Schiavo situation to see those family dynamics in in stark relief. So, you know, what to do? I think I think we need to sort of look at both of those. I think we have technology that could make it possible for really busy doctors to have some kind of virtual meeting space where they could talk about a patient's situation and agree on some general plan of care or some uh, consistent messages for the family about the way things are going for this particular person. Mm-hmm. And I think we have to encourage families to talk to one another about death and dying. I published a paper with an undergrad student, uh, Philip Barrison, in health communication recently that talks about the value of family conversations about death. For so long, we've tried to focus on getting physicians and patients to talk about advanced directives and uh, end-of-life care planning, but your primary care doctor is not going to be at the bedside when your end-of-life issues need to be settled or decisions need to be made. If you're lucky, your family members will be there, and it would be very helpful for all concerned to know something about what you as a person value and something about what you would want and not want if you were able to make those decisions for yourself. Mm-hmm. And we don't do that. Mm-hmm. Lori, as we wrap up our conversation today, if we step back, how would you describe what quality of care looks like at the end of life? You know, I don't think we really know. And I, mm. I, I think we know what it doesn't look like. CPR <laughs> on a frail older person with multiple comorbidities or feeding tubes for patients with Alzheimer's at advanced stages of those of that disease or other dementias. Dialysis for patients who are actively dying. I think if, if we were able to stop some of those practices, we could get closer to it. 
I think hospice is a great resource. We have terrific hospice organizations in our part of uh, Florida, but the quality of what they do is being threatened by the uh, by for-profit hospices that uh, are coming into the state. This is prevalent in other states already, uh, and offer a different kind of model of hospice care. Um, I think despite its uh, ethical complexity, physician aid and dying might be the right kind of option for some patients that mm-hmm. might have a, have what they would consider um, a, a quality death. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think, you know, people suffer when they die. You, you talked about that with your father, and we as a society are very uncomfortable with that. So I, I hope we would continue to try to look at what lessens suffering of any kind, certainly physical and bodily, but also psychological and spiritual for patients, for families, and for the doctors and nurses who try to take care of us in those really difficult situations. They're suffering, they're suffering all around. Mm -hmm. Uh, I I don't know that there's, I don't know that there's a, you know, in earlier parts of my career, I was much more critical of um, patients who pursued, you know, treatment till the, you know, literally till the day they die. And I'm trying to be less dogmatic about that and, and trying to see that there are probably multiple answers to what good care looks like at the end of life. Mm-hmm. I think you can die well in a hospital. I think you can die well at home. I think um, I think we need I think we have a lot more work to do uh, in terms of figuring that out. And I think an essential step is communication about it. it, it death and dying has to be something that we talk about with our families and with our with our medical care providers, it has to be a topic that we address sort of head on, uh, not euphemistically, not hypothetically, but really, this is this is going to happen to all of us, and it would do us all a lot of good in the end if we could be honest about what we're willing to do, what we're willing to endure, what we think is worthwhile for us, and what that might look like. I think it it requires a little planning, and it certainly requires some difficult conversations. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And in hearing you, it requires respect and compassion for the difficult choices that others face when when they find themselves and their loved ones in those situations. So Lori, you're on the front lines of suffering and vulnerability. Thank you for the work that you do and thanks for taking time today to to share it with us. Um, Well, thank you so much for this opportunity, Lynn. I've really enjoyed our conversation and I'm very happy to be a part of this series. Mm, Definitely. Listeners, thanks for joining Dr. Lori Roscoe and I for this episode of the Defining Moments podcast. On our Facebook page, we will provide links to some of Lori's written work, including the two health communication articles that we discussed today. We also have links to her co-authored book and more on the Defining Moments Facebook page at DM Podcast WOUB. Defining Moments is produced by WOUB Public Media and the Barbara Geralds Institute for Storytelling and Social Impact. Adam Rich is our co-producer. You can subscribe to Defining Moments at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or the NPR Podcast Directory. Please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at DM Podcast WOUB. 
And if you're moved to do so, please take time to rate and review this podcast at Apple Podcasts. Go in peace and love one another. Thank you.